I'm sure glad to be saved, aren't you? September the 27th, 1976, in the back bedroom of a little white frame house on Muskogee Road in Cantonment, Florida. Sometime between 8 and 9 o'clock that night, a little seven-year-old toe-headed boy got his daddy to kneel beside the bed with him, take a Bible, point him to Jesus. I've never gotten over that night. Been many times that the devil's tried to talk me out of it, but I still keep going back to my birthplace. Grateful that I'm saved, that I know that I'm saved. We was having church yesterday and somebody was singing or a special or something. We had a boy that we've been praying for for some time. He'd been under conviction. And right while we were singing, somebody was singing a special, he just come on down and got saved. And it wasn't even time to get saved yet. We hadn't even sang the... Hadn't sang the third verse just as I am yet, but he just couldn't wait. Just wanted to get saved. And it's just wonderful to be saved, isn't it? Preacher, thank you so much for the invitation and allowing me to be here. And I'm looking forward to these several days that we have together. And I love the singing. I love the spirit. I love the preaching. I love being in this way, being part of this crowd. And uh, my heart has already been stirred just coming up the road, Parker and I coming up today and listening to the services as we were driving and then just being here and seeing some old faces and new faces. And uh, we're looking forward to having a great time this week. I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to meet me at God, John chapter 3, if you would, the Gospel of John and the third chapter. I am aware of the time and I will preach as the Lord directs me and try not to take any more time that is necessary. But the Gospel of John and the third chapter, I've been preaching through the Gospel of John on Sunday morning in our church, and we are enjoying the journey. And uh, a lot of times, wherever I am at on Sunday, that's where I'm going to be at on Monday if I'm preaching out. And so just a few weeks ago, I was in this passage, and it is the only passage that is on my heart this evening so the Gospel of John, chapter number 3, and I'm going to begin reading in verse number 22. I'm going to read down to the end of the chapter, verse 36, for my text this evening. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, and verse 22. After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea. and There he tarried with them and baptized. John also was baptizing Enon near to Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. For John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. 
He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony has set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Verse 30 is my text tonight, and if I was to put a title to the text, I would simply call it, More of Jesus, Less of Me. More of Jesus, Less of Me. It has been often said that if you listen to a man preach, you can tell what a man thinks about Christ, what he thinks about others, and what he thinks about himself. Does he make much of Christ? Is his preaching Christocentric? Does he have a high view of the Savior? Does his preaching magnify the Lord? Does he preach down to people? Always rebuking, never including himself in their faults. It's always about your sin. Does he have any humility? Does he preach from an air of superiority and a higher level of spirituality than the people that he is preaching to? I told the young men in our homiletics class at church a couple of weeks ago that the ministry and the call to preach does not make you special or spiritual. You put your britches on one leg at a time like everybody else and you are made of the same flesh as everybody else. The call to preach is a special call and it's a glorious privilege, but it comes to common men. Paul said, I magnify mine office, but he did not magnify himself. Of himself, he said, I'm the chief of the sinners. I am the least of apostles in Ephesians 3. I am less than least of all the saints. Ministers are like stars in the dark sky. Their light shines so faintly and dimly, not enough to light up the sky. And the stars begin to fade from few as the sun begins to rise. And so our light, it is faint and it is flickering in a dark world. And as the true light of the world is magnified, our own stars begin to fade into the background. And what the world and the church desperately needs to see on Sunday is more of Jesus and less of the preacher. I think it would be a shame for somebody to come to church and say, I came looking for Jesus, but the preacher got in the way. And so Paul said, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. And ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. And we have a scene in John's gospel that's going to teach us, by example, this, this great lesson. The ministry of Jesus is in its beginning stages, and as of yet, it is still private. The only public work that Jesus has done is cleansing the temple in John chapter 2 and a few miracles in Jerusalem. He has performed the miracle of turning the water into wine at Canaan of Galilee, but that was a private affair. And in none of these has there been any, any announcement that Jesus is the Messiah. There has been no public call for men to come after him as of yet. And at the same time, John the Baptist was still out in the wilderness announcing the arrival of the Messiah. We met John back in chapter 1 when he was holding a revival campaign and Jesus walked into it and John interrupted it and said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And at that time, two of John's disciples left John and began following Jesus, which had been the goal all along. 
John was a popular preacher. Great crowds came out to hear him preach and hundreds were being baptized by him in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. In fact, John was the greatest preacher alive at that time. Jesus himself said that there wasn't one born of women greater than John. There had not been a prophet in Israel for 400 years and then John came on the scene in his eccentric ways and he is preaching that the time of the Messiah was at hand and he is the only star in the dark sky of Israel but as Jesus' ministry begins to take place, his star is going to fade into obscurity. And John knew that. John had no quarrel with pointing men to follow Jesus even if that meant that they would no longer be following him. He understood that he was not the Christ, he was just a forerunner. And the plan had never been for him to be the main attraction. He was just there to show the way to the one that everybody else ought to be following. Jesus is now beginning his public ministry and men are coming out to hear him in droves. And Jesus begins to draw a bigger crowd than John. It's a curious, it is curious, it is a fickle crowd. And they're coming out not just for the teaching, but they're coming for the miracles because Jesus had an advantage on John. John never performed any miracles, and Jesus did perform miracles. And folks are always drawn to the signs and the wonders and the miraculous. And now there's more coming out to hear Jesus than are coming out to hear John. And this is exactly how it was supposed to be. But in our text, we find that some of John's disciples began to be bothered by this situation. They didn't think it was right that John's star was fading and that Jesus was preaching to larger crowds than they had, and so they become jealous of Jesus' early popularity. And when they come to John with the spirit of jealousy, John immediately sets them straight. Essentially, he says, fellas, your perspective is all wrong. You think too highly of yourself and not enough of Jesus. You have fallen into the trap of thinking that you are greater than you really are and you're not appreciating how great Jesus really is. And there is no rivalry between us and Jesus. This is how it is supposed to be. And the words that we read of John in this passage are significant because they are the last words of John. After this, you'll not hear John preaching anymore. You won't hear him holding wilderness campaigns. You will not see him with a great following. In fact, what you're going to see him do is go to Herod's prison and he's going to be beheaded. And his last message to his disciples is, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now the story begins in verse number 22 with a transition phrase to give us some context. And in verse 22, it begins after these things. These things that it's talking about is Jesus' first visit to Jerusalem. It begins in chapter 2 and verse 13 all the way to chapter 3 and verse number 21. Jesus has come into Jerusalem where he has overturned the money changers in the temple. He has performed some miracles. He has had the night conversation with Nicodemus. And I don't know how long that Jesus stayed in Jerusalem, but he and his few disciples, they leave Jerusalem, they go out into the wilderness of Judea, perhaps for a more secluded place. He's going to spend several months there with his disciples teaching and training them. And it is during this time that Jesus and his disciples are in a place the Bible says that is Enon near to Salem. Nobody's ever been able to locate that particular place and it doesn't matter. But it is noted in the text that John and his disciples are not far away at the same time. 
Jesus and John's ministry overlap by about six months. And while Jesus is teaching his disciples, people begin to hear about him and they come out to hear him just like they'd come out to hear John. They come to hear him preach and Jesus and his disciples begin baptizing converts. And so here's the picture. John is over here. He's preaching the arrival of the king and he's baptizing converts and he's having good crowds. But at the same time over here is Jesus and he's preaching and they're baptizing converts and he's having even bigger crowds. And it's this dual scene that we come to in John chapter 3. John preaching in one place and Jesus preaching in, a one, in another place. And it is this scene that I believe that one of the greatest lessons of ministry and life are taught us. I want you to notice with me quickly, first of all, that there is controversy with John's men. Look, if you would, in verse number 25. There arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. They come unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizes and all men come to him. It all starts when John's disciples get into a discussion with some Jews about purifying. It could be that the purification that they're talking about is baptism itself. You see, baptism was for Gentile proselytes, but John is baptizing Jewish converts and that perhaps sparked a controversy. But then this Jew or these Jews, this unnamed Jew that they are talking to, delivers the final blow. Your rabbi is baptizing converts, but are you aware that this man named Jesus is baptizing more converts than you are? And I don't know how that came into the conversation, but it strikes a nerve with John's disciples. And it should not have bothered them because had they been listening to John, they would have been prepared for this day. Wherever they got the idea that John was supposed to be greater than Jesus, they did not get that from John. How many times did John have to say, I am not the Christ, for them to get the message? How many times did they have to hear him say, I am the voice, the voice, the voice, the voice of one crying in the wilderness for it to dawn upon them that John is the messenger, but Jesus is the message. They have loyalty to John, but it is misguided loyalty. And the problem with misguided loyalty is that when your loyalty is misguided, it not only gives more prominence to men who do not deserve it, but it actually takes prominence away from Christ who does deserve it. In fact, look at how they talk. Look, look at how they talk. Look at verse 20, 26, 26. They came into John and said to him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, well, he that was with thee has a name. Right? To whom thou bearest witness. He has a name. And I don't know if it's intentional or not, but they're talking about Jesus, but they don't call his name. And it seems a little bit off-putting to me, a little bit disrespectful not to say his name. Can I tell you, it doesn't matter if anybody knows your name, if anybody knows my name, but everybody needs to know his name. They, they, uh, they, they won't even say his name. And, and it raises an interesting question to me. Why didn't John's disciples leave John and follow Jesus? Why do they stay on with John? What, what do they expect as far as the future is concerned? 
John's ministry is simply to introduce the Messiah. He has done that and his mission has been accomplished, but John's disciples are acting like John is the Messiah. In fact, all the way in Acts chapter 19, you'll find some hangers-on, some of John's disciples that are still following John. We're already into the church age, and I wonder if some of these men heard John pointing to Jesus, but they said, I'd rather just stay with John. In fact, I wonder if that's one of the reasons why John had to be imprisoned and had to be beheaded by Herod, because some men would never follow Jesus as long as John was alive. Well, Lorraine, I believe that we had to be careful in our independent Baptist movement that we don't get into following a man more than we follow Jesus. There are men, there are men who are larger than life and they attract a following on their personality alone. Men that are flamboyant or, or controversial or, 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 or boisterous, whatever it might be. And to their followers, they can do no wrong. And church people rally around their favorite preacher. And if you're not on their favorite list, then, then, then you're not even spiritual. And, and we're not careful. We, 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 when, when did we ever need a following on Facebook? When, when did we need that? And, and, and need to tweet to how great a sermon I preached. And, and, and what is next? A fan club? Is that the next thing I'm supposed to get? You know, I just think that the wrong person is increasing, to be honest with you. He must increase, but I must decrease. If you, if, you, if you stick around for me about five minutes, you will find out I don't have the most engaging, outgoing personality. I'm not a good conversationalist after, hello, how are you? I don't really have a whole lot left to say. No, nobody, nobody comes to Victory Baptist Church because the pastor is dynamic and warm and friendly. That's not the reason why they are there. My idea of a good company is a good book and a dog. And my personality, it leaves a lot to be desired. But to be honest with you, I thank God that he made, made, made me that way. Because if I had a following, I might think a little bit more of myself than what I ought to. You preach a good sermon and you go home thinking you're doing pretty good and God will let you have the next one by yourself fall flat on your face and remind you that you're nothing without him I'm telling you I'm telling you God is reminding us that we're not in this thing for ourselves we're actually in this thing to decrease so that he can increase I, I think that preacher worship is a bane in our movement and, and it's actually an old problem. I, I'm in Numbers chapter 11. You don't have time to turn there. I've got to hurry. Numbers 11 and verse 26. But there remained two of the men in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad. And the spirit rested upon them. They were of them that were written but were, went not out unto the tabernacle and they prophesied in the day. Two, two young preachers named Eldad and Medad. Well, nobody's going to have them for revival with a name like that. And so then there ran a young man and told Moses, and said, Eldad and me, Dad, do prophesy in the camp. You've got these two young preachers that are preaching. They didn't go to our college. They're not in our camp. They're not in our fellowship. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, said, My Lord Moses, forbid them. Shut them up. And Moses said unto them, Moses said unto them, Envious thou for my sake, would God that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them two young preachers that have the spirit of God upon them and they're preaching in the camps of Israel. One of the young men loyal to Moses goes and says we need to shut them up. Joshua got into it as well and Moses said would to God we had more preachers like that. I say tonight 
tonight that you ought not be in the ministry for competition. It's not a game. And what you and I ought to do in any ministry that God gives us is just make much of Jesus. I didn't come into this thing to make a name for myself. I came into this thing to make his name great. And maybe we'll all have a spirit of humility that says I'm glad to serve in the background, glad to serve in the in, 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 without the spotlight. Give me a servant's heart and give me a place to work, but don't even bother calling out my name. There's, 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 there's controversy with John's men. I've got to hurry. There's consistency in John's message. So I wonder what John's going to say about this. I wonder if this is going to bother John. I wonder if he's going to get upset and quit preaching. You see, John had been preaching that I'm not the Christ. I'm just a voice in the wilderness. But that was before the competition. That was when the crowds were up. That was when the offerings were up. That's when all the meetings were being extended. But now a bigger preacher is on the scene and his crowds are growing more than John's. You see, you can rejoice if your church is growing. You can rejoice in somebody else's church growing if yours is growing just a little bit more. You can rejoice if the evangelist has revivals as long as you have just a few more. John has been saying great things about the Christ, but that was while everybody was saying great things about him. But I wonder if this is going to change his tune. That's what John says in verse 27. He says, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. He said, fellas, you need to understand that my ministry is not my ministry. It came from God in the first place. All this success, all these people coming out to hear me, all the great things that they're saying, I, I didn't do any of that. And everything that God allows us to do in any ministry, just remember that it is God. Always remember that ministry is a stewardship and a steward and an owner are not the same thing. It's not my church, it's not my ministry, it's not our inner part, it belongs to him. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter number four, he said, therefore seeing we have this ministry as we have received mercy. Paul said, I received this ministry just like I received the mercy of God. Mercy is something that you and I do not deserve. It is something that you were given even though you were unworthy of it. It was the mercy of God to save you. And it's the mercy of God to call you to preach and to call you to sing and give you a ministry that you do not deserve. I am not the pastor of a church because I worked my way up and was in the right place at the right time and, and the men of the church saw what a gifted fellow I was. That, that's not the reason why I'm there. I am there entirely because of the mercy of God. And John saw this ministry as a mercy, something that God gave me, take it away any time that he wants to. He says in verse 28, ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ but I am sent before him. Fellas, you've been hearing me say, it's not me, it's him. I'm the lone star in the sky. The faster I fade from you, then the better. Verse 29, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. John says, I'm just like the best man at the wedding. I'm there to help the bridegroom, but I'm not the bridegroom. Can you imagine? We have five, four or five weddings planned at our church this year. We've got people get married and have babies and, and, and what have you. And, and, and can you imagine? Can you imagine going to a wedding and, and, and there's, there's the bride, there's the bridegroom, and there's the best man? And can you imagine? Can you imagine when the preacher comes out that back room? And it's usually the groom and then the groomsman. 
Can you imagine him coming out with the best man? Stands at the center of the platform and the best man stand right there beside him. And the groom is down there somewhere in the line with all the groomsmen. Here comes the bride, stops at the front aisle. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? Her father and I. And the best man go down and get her and bring her up. And the best man does the vows, does the ring, unity candle. They sing a song together. Maybe even kiss the bride. And when it's over, turn it over to the groom. Huh? Well, we would all be confused. Who's actually marrying the bride? John said, I'm not the bridegroom. He said, I'm a friend of the bridegroom. I'm here, I, I am here to help him get his bride. I'm here to present the bride to him. But he's the one that gets the bride, not me. When the bridegroom, when the bridegroom takes the bride away, the best man is done. Nobody goes home and says, wow, that best man, he did a great job. I think that was the best, best man that I've ever met. If I ever get a chance to be a best man, I want to be a best man just like him. Oh no, everybody talks about how beautiful the bride is, how glorious the groom was. And once the bridegroom steps out, nobody even glances at the best man anymore. Jesus said, I feel like preaching just a little bit. Jesus said, John said, the thing that gives me joy is when I see sinners coming to Jesus. I love to see Jesus getting his bride. I love seeing sinners getting saved. What John hadn't changed this tune at all. There's no rivalry, there's no competition, there is no jealousy. Can I say to you tonight that the day that you start competing with Jesus for attention is the day that you need to find an altar and confess your pride to God. The day that you get up to sing and your talent outshines Jesus, that's the last day that you need to sing. The day that you get up to preach and your oratory or your funny story or your cute outline outshines Jesus, fold your Bible and go get your job, you're done. In fact, even here at Jubilee, I know the temptation. Sing my best song, preach my best sermon, look through the sugar sticks, and if I can get up and sing a song, get everybody to shout, I might book a meeting out of that. Can I just remind you that you're the messenger, not the message. You're the voice, but he's the song. You sing the tune, but he's the song. Amen. Can the world see Jesus in you? Does your love to him ring true in your life and your service too? Can the world see Jesus in you? There's controversy with John's men. There's consistency in John's message. And then I've got to hurry. There's commendation for John's master. In verse 31 through verse number 36, there's, there's some question among Bible scholars as to whether these words are the words of John the Baptist or John the Apostle. And some say the doctrine is too advanced for a wilderness preacher like John the Baptist, so most likely it's holy. It is commentary from John the Apostle that he adds to the scene. To be honest with you, it sounds a lot like John the Baptist. And I think it is the words of John the Baptist that John the Apostle records. What you have in John chapter 3, and I don't have time to preach it all, but in verse 31 through verse 36, you have one of the richest statements on the preeminence of Christ. It is so rich, it is so full of Christology. It is the prominence of Christ in the profoundest of language. What John's going to do, he's going to tell you why Jesus is greater. He's going to tell you why he must increase, but I must decrease. Look at it quickly, 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 look at it. Verse 31, he that cometh from above is above all. Jesus is heavenly, I'm human. 
There's only one person from heaven. The rest of us are earthly. Jesus is preeminent because he comes from a different world. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly, speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all, and what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He's not only from heaven, but his message comes directly from heaven. When Jesus speaks, he speaks of things he has seen firsthand. The best thing that I can do is tell you about a heaven I've never seen. Tell you about a father I've never seen. But Jesus has firsthand knowledge. You can only speak of what you have seen and heard. He has seen and heard a whole lot more than I have. Verse 32, what he has seen and heard, that he testifieth unto man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony has set to his seal that God is true. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you're essentially saying that God is a liar. You remember when the Father spoke from heaven and placed his seal of approval on the Son? If you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then you're saying that God is a liar. Now that'd be a strong denunciation for the Jews because that's exactly what they would do. The Jewish people believed that they worshiped the Old Testament God, but they rejected Jesus Christ, thereby calling Jehovah God a liar. It was God who sent those prophets. It was God that sent his son, and they rejected the son. They rejected the father. Even now you hear people say that I believe in God, but they don't claim Jesus Christ. You can't believe in God without believing in Jesus Christ. In fact, John would say later on in 1 John chapter 5, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. You don't have the right to say that I believe in God if you don't believe in Jesus Christ. But when you believe in Christ, you are putting your seal. You are putting your seal on what God said that it is true. He says in verse 34, but he whom God has sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure, by measure, by measure unto him. Everything that Jesus did was by the work of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter 12, when they said that he, that he does these works by Beelzebub, Jesus said it's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, because it's not by the power of Beelzebub, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. And John was filled with the Holy Spirit from his womb and his ministry was empowered by the Holy Spirit, but not to this degree. In Jesus dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and the Spirit in his fullness without measure. He says in verse 35, The Father loveth the Son hath given all things into his hand. When this thing finally winds down, ain't nobody going to be worshiping John. The Father has made the Son heir of all things. The kingdoms of the world will be turned over to him. He will reign far above principalities and powers and dominions. The eternal plan of redemption was never to give a kingdom to John. It was always to give it to Jesus. So what is John saying? Can I put it in the modern day vernacular? You'd be crazy to follow me now that he's here. That's what John is saying. He's saying that Jesus is so much greater. As far as I can remember, there's only three Old Testament prophecies of John, Isaiah 40, Malachi 3, Malachi 4, but there's several hundred of Jesus. And may my ministry, may your ministry be much of making much of Jesus. We have young preachers in here tonight, and I thank God for you. And as a young preacher, you are tempted to make a name for yourself by calling out every critic. And I am for every fighting, every battle that is before us, but don't make the critic your message. Make much of Jesus. Preach that nobody remembers you, but they remember the Lord. John says, why would I be jealous of his success? That's what I preach for. And I come to my text, verse 30, I'm done. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's the essence of the entire conversation. 
more of Jesus, less of me. And a minister and a ministry should never produce disciples unto itself. It should always produce disciples of Jesus Christ. There's something wrong when people worship a man, a church, or even a movement. But be careful. Because when John said, I must decrease, he must not have known how true that was going to be. He's already decreasing in size of crowd and number of converts. He's soon going to decrease in freedom because the text tells us John was not yet put in prison, alluding to the fact that he's going to be put in prison. John would even decrease in assurance when he gets into prison and begins to have doubts. Is he really the Christ? John had ran a full ministry, and though he had not had a long ministry, it has been full. He's done everything asked of him. He has performed the duty he's been called to. And now John is about to enter a ministry of decrease. And the only way that a man can enter into that season, if he knows it was never supposed to be about me, if he can say, if by my decrease he is increased, then that's what I desire. It's hard to step aside and hand the baton to somebody else, but when it is Jesus you are stepping aside for, there is joy even in the decrease. And I know that you won't find this in church growth manuals and leadership and what have you, because we are all about the increase, are we not? Increase in influence, an increase in wealth, an increase in possessions, an increase in popularity. Success is all about more. We are geared toward the increase. But God didn't want John to increase. He wants him to decrease. John, I now need less of your ministry. I need less of your voice, and I need less of your freedom, and I need less of your baptism, and I need you to begin receding into the shadows so that my son can step out into the light. Your star is going to fade as my son begins to rise. You're going to lose your influence. You're going to lose your freedom. You're going to even lose your life, but my son is going to be exalted. There's going to be less people talking about you so that there can be more people talking about him. And I wonder what we really want. Do I want to be a success? Or do I want Jesus to be a success? John was such a polarizing figure that there are some men who would have never left him as long as he was alive. So God took this faithful servant and put him in Herod's prison. And it had a lewd woman demand his head on a platter and God had John Killed. That is decrease. And we want to do well. We want to be successful in whatever we endeavor. And I have my ambitions and I have my aspirations and I have my dreams. And I want to be a good preacher and I want to pastor a church and I want, I want God to use me. Enjoy a church that is growing. We enjoy ministries that see people say we appreciate open doors to influence people. I want to increase. But more than me, I want him to increase. I want his name to be great. I want his work to be accomplished. I want Jesus to be exalted. It would take a big Christian to say, I'm willing to decrease so that he might increase. What if, you, what if we took your position and gave it to somebody else who could do it better? Would you be offended to be decreased? Can you imagine the best man 
Imagine the best man standing in the corner of the wedding, looking at the groom, bride, groom, and the bride, mad. Why does he get all the attention? They got his name in the reception book. They didn't even put my name. You know how much work I've done. All these gifts. And nobody gave me a car. All these gifts, all this stuff. Everybody bragging about him. He gets to kiss the bride. Look, look at all the adoration. Look at look at look at the worship him. I'm the one that did all the work. I, I, I'm the one that worked behind the scenes. They would have had this had it not been for me. They told John that Jesus is a better preacher than you. I think it just filled him with joy. When they said you baptized 50, but they baptized 100 over there, I think John almost shouted. John said this, therefore, my joy is fulfilled. We are sad. We are depressed. We're irritated. We're angry. We are despondent. We run through the whole gauntlet of emotions, and most of them are negative. And we have Christians that are on having anxiety attacks, and they're on antidepressants, and we got to go see the psychiatrist and get counseling. And the reason why is because our lives are all wrapped up in ourselves. We have more than any generation before us, and we're more miserable than any generation before us. And I tell you that, that when you get in the back of the line with Jesus, up front, that's when you'll really have some joy. But you got to keep it in order. He must increase. I must decrease. And you cannot decrease until he increases. There are some Christians who think that the secret is just to put the flesh down without lifting up Jesus. And it just becomes a sanctification of self mortification Just put the old man down and crucify the flesh. The priority needs to be that Christ needs to be increased in your heart. The secret is not just self-abasement. The secret is to falling in love with Jesus. Can you say more of him? Less of me. May my star fade as his sun rises. May the world see Jesus in me. But may they never see more of me than they see of him. I wonder, I wonder if there's a young man, a young lady in here, and I thank God for our young people. Here on Monday night, and you've been here all day, it's some kind of indication that you must, like church, love God. You have ambitions, dreams, and aspirations. You want to turn the world upside down. But I wish tonight that we could take all of our dreams and all of our pride and all of the spirits of jealousy and envy in our hearts and all of our selfish dreams. I wish so, somehow tonight that we could take it all and bundle it all into one box, lay it at the Calvary, and say, Lord, I give it to you. It's not about me. It's about you. I think tonight it would be good if we had some young people that would come to the altar and you don't have to be in crisis and you don't even have to have a need, but you could just come and say, Lord, I love you. I really, really love you. And I give my life to you. And I surrender you my messes and my successes. I give it all to you. More of you. Less of me. Oh, Heavenly Father, speak to our hearts tonight. Strip us tonight of pride and jealousy All of the darknesses and blacknesses of our heart. Forgive us for every time that we've ministered in your name for our name's sake. Forgive us for that. May the world see you tonight. 
May you be magnified. May you be the one that's exalted tonight. More of you. Less of me.